so glad you guys could stay, and I have some amazing guests on stage with me. Um, and I'm going to have them introduce themselves, uh, so you can tell us your name, a little bit about yourself, and also your connection to the world of Sure. Hi, guys. Uh, my name is Ed Morgan. I'm an ensemble performer here at Dad's Garage Theater Company uh, in the improv ensemble. I am also the understudy for the role of Stephen in The White Chip. Uh, today is day 647 days sober for me, I think. Uh, or 627? I, I could look it up, but I forget. Uh, and uh, I, I, the connection to the white chip is literally that uh, Sean Daniels himself uh, was helping me when I was getting sober. And uh, part of it was he sent me a recording of the white chip to watch. Uh, and it blew my mind. And one failed attempt later, it worked. <laughs> so that, that's my world with the white chip. Um, my name is Amanda Holloway. Um, I technically started working in addiction in 2001 um, and I have worked everywhere from women's forensic programs, methadone clinics, inpatient, outpatient, um, uh, community work with kids, um, veterans, you name it. Um, I currently work at positive impact health centers the assistant director in addiction services, and um, I love the work that I do. And on a personal note, I'm what people refer to as a child of an alcoholic. Um, my joke is my family tree is well watered with vodka. <laughs> Hi, everyone. My name is Jamie M. Coleman, and um, I am three months away from um, 10 years of life in the It's been an amazing journey. It's been challenging at many, many um, points along the, the way. Um, but what recovery has given me so much of is a life that I could have never dreamed of. Um, a life of relationships, um, a partner who I adore and have a loving relationship with. Um, the ability to see so much of my um, dynamics from childhood, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of my journey. But I had the opportunity in, um, in 2018 to finish a master's in rehab counseling, rehabilitation counseling. Um, and then I started working part-time at Positive Impact Health Centers, where Amanda Holloway has been my boss um, for all these years. And then I finished a PhD in counselor education this past year and now I'm teaching at Georgia State and having the opportunity to work with students, uh, particularly in the field of addiction and also trauma, um, co-occurrence of addiction and trauma, um, PTSD work. Thank you. Thank you all for being here. I suddenly feel woefully underqualified. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, so, of course, this is Sean Daniels. It's based on Sean Daniels' personal story. So it's very much one guy's experience with addiction. And what I would like for each of you to talk about, uh, especially seeing the show or reading the show, um, what are things uh, about the challenges of addiction that the play didn't cover that we should probably be aware of as a general audience? <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, everybody starts thinking the what first. <laughs> It's very sultry, it's very nice. Thank you. It's doing the thing, and I couldn't make this up. I could not make this voice happen if I tried. Um, but I think it's really, I think the hardest thing to explain to people is how hard it is to get help when you want help and you don't have resources. Um, sometimes even when you do have resources, I think that's something that you, you can't explain. My favorite joke is when he, um, he talks about why didn't anyone tell me if I made it to 90 days it would get easier because I talk about post-acute withdrawal symptoms ad nauseum and um, like the, what I'll hear a lot of times is clients will say to me, why do you keep repeating this to me? And then like 30 days later, they're like, how come you never told me this? And I'm like, you're not listening to me. <laughs> We did that. I'm like, you have the worksheet. You wrote on it. You left it in the group room. It still has your name on it. I found it on the floor last week. Like, you know, so. But I think the hardest, the thing that you, you probably would need six shows to cover is how to work through the system. Mm. Yeah, I would, I would second that with what Amanda has just said um, about the, the complexity of all the facets that go, go in and what we saw in the hour and 40 minutes, just a brief snippet of, of that. And a lot of the clients that I um, get to work with and to serve and collaborate with in their journey of recovery, um, it is looking at not just what, what was the substance and the, the factors around the substance, but the entire holistic lens of the person, um, their environment, their support system, their network, um, what, what resources are available and how do I come alongside the client um, and and walk along that that journey with them. Uh, it, 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 on opening night, it was really funny because I was having a conversation with Sean. I was asking him about uh, the, about the show, and one thing I asked was, "Did you ever have a scene in there that uh, talked about what it feels like to go through alcohol withdrawal?" Um, specifically because it's touched a little bit in the show, but um, you know when we say this all feels like new information, why isn't anybody telling me this? There's a lot of stuff that they don't tell you, and one of them is like alcohol withdrawal is the worst, right? It's one of only two drugs you can die just from withdrawing from. The others, benzodiazepines and booze, right? Um, and you're dealing with a product that's like attached to this whole, you know, well-connected industry with lobbyists and whatnot to keep you from knowing these things, but uh, or, or rather actively de-incentivize you being told these things. Um, but it is, I mean, the it, it's undescribable to anybody who hasn't done it, right? Like it's the worst sick you've ever been, and you might just drop dead. <laughs> like absolutely nuts that they don't tell you. Like if you stop, you could die. Um, and so that was something that I was like, oh, I wish we, I wish we could pound into that a little harder. But it is only ninety minutes after all. Yeah, and there's something about that too that might really discourage people from drinking. You know that I know, right? They, they don't tell you alcohol is like the most addictive substance there is. It does all sorts of damage to you that like you don't know about if you aren't looking into it. And yeah, that people don't know that stopping is dangerous. And so people will try to get like their family members to just stop. <laughs> and that could kill them, and they don't know that that could kill them. Um, so yeah, there's all the there, there's so much information to try and jam yeah. into one. Whatever, you, please don't lock your family member in the 
basement. <clears throat> like, that's like a thing. People are like, oh, we'll just put uncle so-and-so in the basement or my nephew and we'll just detox him at home. That is really unsafe. Not only can you have like DTs and die, you can have, force somebody to have a seizure, they can have an aneurysm, the same with <clears throat> benzodiazepines, like those are the two that you die. When I say how hard it is to get care, this, I don't want to stand on a soapbox. There is no detox for stimulants. Stimulants weren't even considered in a substance of abuse until like the late 80s because there were no physical symptoms of withdrawal. So technically, you don't detox from cocaine. So what would happen when I worked at a hospital is you would come in and you would say, I need to detox from cocaine, methamphetamines, list any stimulant you like here. And they would say, you can't. And then someone would go to the, the quick trip and get drunk on our property and come back in so they could detox. Because you can't detox unless you're drunk or on pills. So, <clears throat> even understanding the levels of care. Detox is not rehab. So there's detox, which is inpatient, because that is the only inpatient care you can receive for, for substance use, is detox. Detox is typically three to five days. If you are really, 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 um, heavily involved in substances, like if you've been on substances for a very long time, you might make it to seven days. Then there's um, residential treatment, then there's partial hospitalization, then there's intensive outpatient, and then there's community services. And you have to fail at a lower level of care to qualify for a higher level of care. And that's literally what you're provider calls it. You have to fail at a lower level of care to qualify for a higher level of care oftentimes. Um, so the thing about, well, one of the things about the play that I love so much is that um, Sean realizes in the process that the AA 12-step approach, which we all know, <laughs> uh, isn't going to necessarily work for him. Um, and I thought that was fascinating because, it, as far as I was concerned, that was the only way to get clean. So I would love for y'all to talk about other approaches other than AA, 12 steps, that people may not be aware of. We got them. Sure, sure, I'll start. Um, yeah, so it, I, it's one thing I'm super glad about with the white chip is that they, because even the specifics of the alternatives don't matter if you don't know that there are alternatives, right? right? And um, I, I'm sorry, I'm going to do my best to, to not sound uh, annoyed by, by this aspect, right? But like, the, the thing about AA is they tell you this is the only way, right? Uh, which leads to a massive dropout rate. They have, it's something like 40% of people who start going to AA quit in the first year. Um, which is like not great, obviously, um, because they're told that if you if you can't do this, you can't get sober, and so they just give up. Which you know you can you can talk all you want about like how efficient or how efficacious it is for some people, but you only hear the success stories because only the successful are still around and alive to tell them. Um, they tell you like this is the one and only way, and it's 
it's just, it, it's so old, right? A, when AA started, it was the only way, right. and so that makes sense, but it's not now, and it doesn't need to be. Um, and so, like, I, I've, I've been to AA, I've been to Smart Recovery, I've been to all sorts of stuff, uh, and then I found my group that I loved, which, don't get too freaked out, it is uh, the Satanic Temple. <laughs> they are amazing. Uh, they have a group uh, called the Sober Faction. The Satanic Temple, in case you're not super familiar, they're not the Church of Satan, the Anton LaVey, Alistair Crowley, uh, magical sex cult. They are the American non-theistic non religious association that like uh, makes states put up a Baphomet at the courthouse if they're going to show the Ten Commandments for religious freedom, that kind of thing. Um, and they have a, a, a support group called the Sober Faction that is... Um, it's, it's very much, you know, non-theistic Satanism, their whole thing is, I reject the idea that there is a power higher than myself, right? Like, uh, physics, I guess, would be the one, right? Uh, you can't fix that. But the idea is that your addiction is simply um, an adversary, it's a problem. It is something that can be overcome uh, with what you have inside you. Uh, and so, going into an environment like that, that was intensely non-judgmental and full of other uh, doofus-looking metalheads, uh, like myself, uh, was extremely helpful. Um, but here's the thing, when it comes down to it, all, the, all of them are so similar. Um, even, even the Satanic Temple stuff is like, it's still, take a look deep inside yourself, recognize that you have a problem with this thing and you need to fix it, do things for other people, help other people who are struggling. All the stuff is in there, right? I think what what it's really all about is just a community. Like, all you have to do is find a group of people to talk to and be honest with and be accountable to. I think that's what works from AA, it's what works from Smart Recovery, it's what works from this, um, that that really helps. And what, what I found is just I wanted to go hang out with a bunch of tattooed, pierced uh, folks <laughs> while I didn't mind. Not that you won't find plenty of those in an AA room, but uh, this was had a little extra metal to it. <laughs> so there is Smart Recovery, there's Celebrate Recovery, there's SoberMeetup.com, there, I think there's one now called Sober Link Up. I don't know, that one feels a little like Sober Tender. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that, one, that one creeps me out. <laughs> yeah, that one feels a little weird to me. Um, so I didn't go on it, but I was like, oh, okay. Um, but Sober Meetup is um, the one that do sort of recommend because they'll do things like um, there's there they are like the community board where you can do sober CrossFit with people sober um, like sober golf because I was laughing when they were talking about golf because I didn't know people drank at golf so like my friends started playing golf and I was like clearly they're drinking. Um, uh, so like everything you want to do. Sober, there are people on Sober Meetup doing it. Um, and so that whole idea of community, because a lot of people are concerned that I'll never be able to do the fun stuff again. Um, so I usually recommend that. Um, I, I'm a fan of AA when it's used correctly. And this is what I mean. AA was designed to be a program of attraction. That means I see you, you're, you have this thing, and I want to be like you, right? right? So it's never supposed to be forced. And so when people uh, are forced by judges to go there, forced by sober livings to go there, forced to be there, then I think that is a misuse of that program, and that's when you end up with shenanigans. 
so that's my opinion about that. I, th I think the numbers back yeah. you up. When like, you when you force them, when you force people to do things, you create shenanigans. That's just my thoughts. <laughs> that's just my thoughts. Um, but um, then there are. Um, I have another client. I can't think of the name of it, but it's Wiccans. Um, so it's like a Wiccan support group. Um, and then I, Double Trouble is for people who have dual diagnoses um, so that you get support because sometimes there are concerns about taking mental health medications and being like I can talk about my mental health diagnosis in conjunction with um, substance use issues. So Double Trouble is also a good um, avenue for people. Um. 12-step was part of my journey of recovery in year two. Um, I was part of an emotional restorative program for 18 months um, that changed my life where I had to, I had the opportunity to um, meet with a group of people and really connect. And it was around processing pain, understanding emotions, but then also it had a large um, dealing with shame, approaching shame, um, and so it, it heavily impacted me. Um, that way. But I just want to mention that I have the opportunity now to work at the agency where we work at at Positive Impact. Um, and it's really a wraparound approach or an integrated um, treatment approach. So our clients come in and it's a nine-month intensive outpatient program. It's three phases of a day program. And phase one, the first 90 days, is really a lot of um, skill building. There's process group, we even have yoga, meditation, which I think is really um, cool, and our clients begin to like closer to the 90 days. And then um, in the, once past the 90 days, they start coming to what we call continuing care. And that's the program that I get to coordinate, and it's where we look at not just here's, here's recovery and then move on, but what does life look like in recovery? Um, because as, as difficult as as horrific as stopping substance is, we're looking at recovery. What does the person want their life to be like? But how do we help them to live that life without the substances that maybe was relied upon before? And there are a couple of professional groups too, because sometimes there's a lot of shame for people who feel like they're supposed to be better than addiction, which is sort of everyone on earth, but particularly like pilots <laughs> and uh, surgeons and those types of people. Um, like Talbot and Mar and most um, agencies have uh, professional groups. Um, so I was doing a lot of research uh, coming up with trying to come up with sources to be in conjunction with um, production, sources that people can use for recovery. And I found out very quickly <laughs> <laughs> that there are, in the state of Georgia at least, very few uh, free or affordable <laughs> sources for folks who are looking at recovery uh, as an option. Uh, and uh, so I, first thing I want to know, especially from YouTube, like, is this like a nationwide thing or is this like really particularly a Georgia thing? One. And two, I mean, but what do people who don't have the resources, like how do they go about getting the treatment? Are, are there ways for them to to sort of, you know, bypass the system and actually get, get this help that a lot of people can't afford to get. <laughs> Speak your truth. Yeah. Who 
Google results. This um, so some of the problem, I'm gonna make my answer as short as possible. Some of the problem is a result of choosing not to expand healthcare. That's some of the problem. Some of the ways programs get around it, like for example, there's one program that literally sends people to go work on a chicken farm to supplement the cost of people coming to treatment. Oh. There's another program that sends people to go work in a call center to supplement the cost of treatment. I won't name one because I don't want them to get in trouble because I'm sure that's not legal. But um, I understand why. It's, it's weird. I was on board with the chicken farm, but not the call center. <laughs> so the call center, they work in the call center to get donations. Mm. And that is how some people pay for their treatment. They work in the call center that gets donations that funds treatment. Uh, I mean, I you know, I'm not in the, the industry. I can say that, like, uh, when I uh, decided to go to detox, and I was just like, I need to do something, like, today about this, um, I went to my uh, county's crisis center. Those are, they're real things. If you, you know, just look up the crisis center for your county. Um, when I didn't realize that it was only for the uninsured, uh, when I got there, I still had health insurance, so they just, dumped me in an ambulance, which I had to pay for, to send me to another facility. Uh, but yeah, I mean, those are there, it is just like, it feels like it's so few. It's something like, something like 70 or so percent of people who need addiction treatment never receive it. Just, it's, it's the shame, it's the money, it's the everything, right? But the money, I feel like, is probably one of the biggest problems. Just like, what happens if you don't have money or health insurance or whatever, it's like, there's very little space. I got turned away from that crisis center once because they didn't have beds. So there are some state-funded ones. Like for example, there is one. <clears throat> there are at least two that are state-funded for women and children. Um, one is run by Mar Women's, uh, which is uh, right side up. They have two locations. There's Mary Hall Freedom House, which is Mary Hall Freedom Center or something now. Um, same Jews, but they all have like waiting lists, like really, really long waiting lists. You can go to a hospital, but so yeah, it's just really hard to get care. It is, I mean, it is extremely difficult if anyone has you yourself or friends and family um, seeking treatment or aspects to, to recovery. Um, and some of it is, as has already been mentioned, just knowing what resources are available and then how they may um, intersect and so okay so where we work um, our funding sources um, come from a lot of grant funding that we have either through SAMHSA um, Ryan White because a lot of our clients um, living with HIV are at risk of uh, becoming infected with HIV and so um, we have different programs we have a harm reduction program in addition to our IOP um, the continuing care program that I mentioned and so but it's also letting people know that this is available. So depending on what insurance someone has, but then we also have funding sources um, available as well. But 
So, the way we did it, and please feel free to tell your friends, I know some people had to leave, but the way we did it, basically, we set it up. Anyone who abuses substances is defined as someone who is at risk of HIV. And um, that means anyone who comes to get services at our facility is eligible for care, period. And we don't turn away anyone for inability to pay, period. Okay. And I think sometimes people are like, wait, what? What did you say? Period. We don't turn away people because they can't pay? Period. Yeah. Ever. And trust me, I've been tested on that many times. And I mean it when I say it. And people, um, Call me. It, I will never turn someone away because they can't pay. That's amazing. Um, I'm going to open it up to y'all. Uh, if there are any questions for this wonderful panel, or if not, I know some songs. Totally do a So uh, someone just asked about harm reduction as a strategy for uh, Yeah, so typically when people are thinking about sobriety or recovery, they're thinking about abstinence-based treatment. And so, just for clarity, abstinence-based treatment means that you are not taking any illicit substances or drinking alcohol. And so harm reduction is this idea of Maybe I'm someone who can engage in moderate drinking, but I don't want to take methamphetamines at all. Or maybe I'm someone who can engage in moderate marijuana use, but I don't want to drink alcohol and I don't want to do cocaine or some version of whatever this is, right? Um, but I need to think about what recovery looks like for me. I need to map out recovery for myself. I need to understand What's happening in my body? What does this need to look like for me? And so we have at our facility an eight-week program where you come once a week and you meet with our facilitator. His name's Jim Sackman. And he has, I think, 30 years of working in recovery. And they map out this personalized journey. Now, this works if you are bored one day and you want to look up GSM criteria. This works really well for people who meet like mild to moderate. Um, DSM criteria. It doesn't mean we don't have people who <coughs> probably it's not a good fit for, but I mean, try it, right? Like, we don't know what works for us until we try and see what works for us. I think that more people, we have had some people say, hey, I came to harm reduction twice. It's not working. Can I try your abstinence-based program? And we're like, sure, you can try the abstinence-based program. So I think it does give people the opportunity to not feel judged while they figure out what they, what they actually need. Because I think that's what we all want, is to not feel judged, to not like, feel like finger-pointed at. 
So we're from Kentucky. More <laughs> 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 importantly, Bardstown, Kentucky, the bourbon capital of the world, is our claim to fame. But we recently lost a brother-in-law to addiction, and um, he took his own life. And I had never heard the steps laid out the way he did. He did it all. He failed it all and kept getting bumped up. But the religious connection that he had to the reason that he struggled was never going to be the answer for him. And I never thought about that until this play. So you just need to know everybody should see this. Because everybody has somebody that they've been connected to. But being told to find Jesus when the people that represented Jesus to you as a child are, might be part of the problem was not the way to go. And I don't think he ever knew there was another way. We live in a small town. You know, you think it's hard to find help here. Um, in a small rural Kentucky town, it's very hard to find help, especially if your wife is in politics and mm -hmm. things like that. So thank you for the work that you all are doing. Thank you for this um, presentation. It, thank you for it, sharing. It really made a big us. difference. Yeah, thank you for sharing. Yes, yeah, yeah, I, I just, yeah, I, I can't imagine what it must be like with people who can't connect to the religious aspect. Um, and they think that their only option is to connect to the religious aspect. Yeah, and coming from, like, I, I, am, a, I am a, like, rather intensely non-religious person. Uh, like, even, even in, like, the, the meetings and stuff I was going to with the Satanic Temple folks, I was like, yeah, but I'm not going to become, like, a card-carrying member of the temple because like this is also an organized religion right like I, 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 I still have a problem with this um, I think what um, what tends to 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 get people sort of it's, it's the idea that it's the idea that um, you're weak you're weak like that's what it right. usually like that's what it usually comes down to is there is something outside you needs to do this for you because you can't the answer is you can. the answer is you can and just it just comes with a lot comes with a lot, and, but I, right? I and the, but I, I think that um, the, the 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 line in the play, the, the line in the play, finally, the line, the, play that I, the line in the play that I think is really the, important. Um, that um, I, the right I hope is taken the right way. How many people are like me? How many people are like me who don't make it because we lead with God instead of science? The word right, the word lead to me is very important there. I don't. Um, I don't any problem have any problem with people using server. God to if keep them sober. If that's what it is, absolutely please um, do. But the idea um, that that's, but the, idea that that's the front end, right? Uh, this, right? Is, uh, this, is, this is the only way out, and you have to start by believing in this thing. Uh, Even, I, don't uh, I don't know how many people here have read the big book of AA, but there's a chapter called The Agnostics that is supposed to be like, oh, well, you're not very religious, but like, here's the chapter for you that will help you. Chapter to the Agnostics. Chapter to the Agnostics. And we decided to believe in God. Decided to believe in God anyway. It's, like, not, it's, not, it's not just religious. It's just not. It's like, have you tried believing uh, in it just a little? Uh, which is like, sure, fine, whatever. Right? Sure, fine, whatever right? oh, I, yeah, and I'm sorry, yeah, I should make it clear. I'm, sorry, not, I'm, not, clear. I'm, not, I'm not attacking anybody's viewpoint by saying this. Yeah. Sure. sure. Um, if you notice in the play when the, the Jesus man is telling him he needs a higher power. He's saying, mine is Jesus, who is yours? Now, I don't know what happens in Kentucky, but I do know what happens in Kentucky, because I've been to AA meetings everywhere. And I'm not an AA proselytizer. I'm very much a white worker. For sure. For sure. But 
AA will tell you itself, it is not a religious organization. It is a spiritual organization, albeit. And it is based on male Christian culture. It was written in 1935. What most people, myself included in AA and CMA and NA, because I'm just addicted to fucking everything, <laughs> uh, is find what's bigger than you. Because the play is right. The play is elegantly written, exquisitely written. I find it's, it's treatment of addiction in the creative community particularly haunting. Um, I myself have a career in the theater and in the um, But yes, it is big. It's big. I recently had an experience that you were talking about where I was in an A meeting with a CM, a crystal meth meeting, and a young crystal meth addict thought I was wise or something and said, gee, can you talk to me? And he tried, he tried, he tried his level best to go to detox because he was scared to death of detox. And I said, well, and unfortunately to be to qualify for any program, he had to go through detox. So it was a, it was a catch point. I don't want, 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 I'm very sorry about that. Yes. Thank you. That was me. And I, I appreciate it. And I, I appreciate it. And I didn't jump. And, and I'm so sorry that you lost your point. And what I do every day, the first thing I, we say, the first thing we say is a moment of silence for the suffering. I appreciate I, I appreciate the pushback and I, I agree with you. What works works. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Book of Mormon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it works works, right? Two more questions. Let's get two more questions. Yeah. Sure. Um, uh, my name is Andrew. I'm also an adult child of alcoholic hey, family. Hey, functional family. Um, I was wondering if you could kind of talk to, um, it, it seems like the source of a lot of this shame and other negative emotions or patterns of behavior, biases or coping mechanisms that people like use addictive substances to are because it's rooted in family dynamics, right? The disease of a dysfunctional family. Can you kind of speak to how people can, you know, get treatment for that or whether or not really framing uh, addiction issues as mental health issues is, is really key here? Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So the question was, addiction issues as a mental health issue, is that beneficial? Yes. Yes. Beneficial. Beneficial. That's a soapbox. Yeah, it feels like it. Like, to be asked the full answer would take an hour, but yeah. 
and if, if I could and just say that, if I could just say that, because I, I, because I, I, I with clients through the years, with clients through the years, approach that question a little bit, that question a little bit, a little bit different, but, but it's, I've come to counseling. But I've come to counseling. What do I need to, to work on? What do I need, what do I need to, to work on? What do I need to fix? Right. Right. You're the professional help. You're the professional help. And what and I experience, what I experience oftentimes, oftentimes is that when there is an opportunity, an opportunity to be part of a community, a support, a support group or network, group or network going through similar aspects, whether that is a COA program, program or something like I went through, an emotional restorative program, program. program. But, it's also finding but it's also finding those resources or access, access to them. Sometimes it's a lot of curiosity, it's a lot of questioning. Navigating. Um, navigating. I think not there's, I think there's idea, this idea that it's not emergent anymore, but this is idea that attachment theory can explain a lot of addiction theory. Um, addiction theory. There's this idea, hopefully everybody knows that all codependency research stems from addiction research, right? The original, the original definition for codependency was you're addicted to someone who's addicted to a substance. Right, that's my favorite. Um, and so, um, and what, so I will say what I will say is, in terms of, in terms recovery, of recovery, I think second stage recovery work is, work is my favorite, personal favorite. I don't get to do a lot of it, just to do most of it. It's this idea of what is life like once those initial urges are gone, like that second, that second year life stuff, right? Like first year, you're just like, I'm making it to a year, I'm gonna make it to a year. To get that one year chip, and then you're like, I've made it to a year now. What do I do? Right. Um, so I think it's just like learning to live. How do I live once I've realized I have these patterns? What do I do once I'm no longer the identified bad guy in my family? Right. Like everyone thinks. Um, we talk about it a lot. We talk about it a lot. Like people said they wanted me. People said they wanted me to get better, but now I'm better, and everyone's like, you're you're still sort of an a-hole. And it's like, and yeah, it's like, that part yeah, wasn't. that part wasn't the truth. <laughs> 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 I don't know how to do that. Um, so it's, so I think, um, so I think it's record. There's the awareness part. I joke a lot, but, joke a lot, but no one that I, no one that I've ever met. Drank because they were stupid. No one I ever met drank or used because they weren't aware. It's like, no, I'm super aware. And that's probably why I'm doing it. And now I'm aware and I don't have my safety blanket and like I'm figuring things out. And so I do think um, therapy and all of those things are very helpful. And I think everyone needs it. It's probably more so sober. Thank you. Final question. Uh, final question. Yes. Um, yeah, hi. Thank you all so much for this um, great talk back. Um, I'm actually also uh, in recovery. I will have nine years. Is like what you just said about you know you can have all the self knowledge in the world, 
but it really doesn't matter. If you can know I have a problem, you can want to get sober, you can try all different kinds of ways, like drinking, you know, he, he talks about like, well, I'm just going to drink out of town, you know, and, and that, those really are kind of the, the solutions that you come up with. Um, and it's really scary to realize, um, you know, I think when you first come in and you hear about like, the powerlessness, that you have to sort of accept that you are powerless against the drink. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about just sort of your own experience with that and with working with, you know, I think people who, you know, when you get to rock bottom, it's like you're so terrified that you will literally try things that sound crazy, like praying even though you don't have God, you know, um, just to get through. So sort of what what it means to accept powerlessness and why sometimes that's an effective way to get sober. And then the second part of that, um, I just, I, I'd be really interested um, in just your thoughts on what are your pet peeves of like the way that alcoholism and AA or recovery groups of any kind are portrayed like in TV and movies? Because I definitely have my own list, um, but you know, just would love your thoughts on that too. So you want to start? I, I like to have powerlessness not so with, not so much powerlessness, but like you are the only person who can outsmart you. It's not so much, so much like you are without power, but like you are the one outsmarting you. Constantly. You are the one tricking you all the time. I was like, I can never run a con on you. You're running this con on you. Constantly. Um, and so like, and when we sort of can laugh about it, and talk, like do like those relapse autopsies where they realize that like, oh, this is how I play this joke on myself. Like, I can just, like when they realize that how they insert just, or um, usually it's just, I'm just gonna do this, I'm only gonna go here, right thing, and I'm like, I'm glad you were only. And you know, like we sort of like laugh about that part. They realize that that's where the power is, and that's sort of that's how it sort of starts, right? And then we talk about how like the snowball goes down the mountain, and that's the powerlessness part. Once that snowball gets going, that's what it is. One thing about powerless. One thing about powerless. So I work with a lot of, so with a lot of um, clients multiple, with multiple, historically marginalized, historically marginalized identities. So this idea of so this idea of powerlessness. powerlessness. They come in and already powerless. Already powerless. What am I? What am I? What am I giving up? So, right. So whether it's language matters. Whether it's language matters. It's framing. It's talking. Framing. It's talking. But I think of it coming alongside. I think of it coming alongside clients that I'm working with. Clients that I'm working with. Meeting. Um, meeting. Where they are. I also where don't they see are. I also don't see what we used to what we used to resist about like resistance in treatment in and recovery. Treatment and recovery. Um, I do not see it as a bad thing. I do not see it as a bad thing. I actually want to lean into it. Something I want to 
something I wanted to you know, almost elicit so that I can see more um, see more what's going on what's, in that way. What's going on in that so way. I finished a study. So I finished a study looking last year looking at um, bias, um, bias in counselors persons, towards persons um, in a relapse situation. In a relapse situation. Had relapsed alcohol. Who had relapsed alcohol versus relapse versus relapse to crystal meth use. Various reasons. Various reasons. And what we found was and what that we found was that empathy level towards them did not change. But what we did but find, what was, we did find was how they attributed blame to the client, to the client did shift, did shift based, based on alcohol versus stimulant use. Um, now I can, um, now I can go into all the academic reasons, all the academic why, reasons and why and everything else. But if we look at what's normal, normal in our society, Google, uh, you Google alcohol use, alcohol use you're going to have... You're going to have not any with images. It's not going to be terrible, 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 terrible images per se. But if you Google, if you Google crystal meth use, crystal meth use, it's going to be it's going meth to be it, meth mouth. You want to ground. You know, you want to ground. So you may have a trauma response from those images. Um, and so I just share um, that. So I just share that to say there's also that perception that also plays a lot of role in a lot of clients that I work with. Are in, um, recovery from are in recovery from crystal meth use. And the last thing, and I'll, I'll the last thing is I'll in response, to, response, the in response to the harm reduction question. Because this is something because that, this is something I, that wish room was, I wish the room was still, was still, was still full. Because my clients, because my clients um, in recovery from crystal um, meth use, the likelihood of someone with a stimulant use with disorder, stimulant use disorder methamphetamine type, achieving one or more years of sustained abstinence is less than 1%. Now, now, now I've been in the field long enough, I've been in the field long enough that I see trends. The trends in 2020 has, has been fear over relapse, over relapse escalating because of being laced in everything. And so, um, and so our, clients um, our clients are not just talking about afraid of relapse. I'm afraid of relapse. I'm afraid of dying because I relapsed. So one of the harm reduction, so one of the harm reduction pieces is fentanyl testing. Is fentanyl testing. Amazon, on Amazon, the Atlanta, um, the Atlanta harm reduction society. But I tell my students this. I tell my students this. I tell all my clients, anyone that you know who smokes marijuana, anything like drugs, anything like that, it is actually a harm reduction technique because they can just test the drug before the drug before whatever the whatever the moral. Viewpoint is on it. Viewpoint is on it. Will it but save lives? Will it save lives? Um, um, now for the least informed. Now for the least informed. Is, uh, is uh, when I when I hear uh, when I when I hear powerlessness. What, what I hear. Um, what, what I hear is really there is you cannot do this by yourself. Right. It is. This, right. this is it not. Is, a, this is not a solvable problem. This is not a solvable problem by willpower alone. I think a lot about. There's a. I think it's in this I think it's in this naked mind. Willpower is finite. Willpower is finite. And that. And that you have to recognize. You have to recognize that willpower alone cannot solve anything because you. You can only hold up a, a, a brick for so long before, brick your, so long before your arm gets tired, um, right? Um, so what I what I took that so what I what I took was, that was a lot of was was a lot of like help. you it need help. help. It doesn't matter what the help is or where it comes from. What somebody or something somebody or something to help you. Um, and so I think um, and so I think that it is sort of a language it is sort of a language problem. It's like we use words like powerlessness probably because it probably because it comes from a religious paradigm, right? Which can't be smirched that. 
Um, so I think that was the so I think that the biggest the, thing for the me. Was biggest thing for me was just, just recognizing that myself. I couldn't do it by myself. And I think that's where the service, service part, is great. The service part is, is great. I think it is great for someone who's in recovery to help other people who are struggling because that's part of the deal. That's part of the right. It only feels right. It only feels right. Somebody helps me. I will. Thus, I will help somebody else. As far as movies and TV, as far as movies and TV, I can talk for a very long time. I would. I would. I would. There's a concept. There's a concept in television called Flanderization, which is specifically follow after Ned Flanders from The Sims, which is the word for when a character goes from being a well-rounded, full character and devolves into catchphrases over time. Uh, and it, they become one note because Ned Flanders started as this like really interesting character and now he's just oakley doakley do neighbor, right? Like that's all they do him. Uh, and so I feel like uh, addicts are Flanderized <laughs> quite a bit to the point where they're either rock bottom, uh, usually like, you notice you never see a, a, a happy addict who uh, wears heavy metal t-shirts in a, a movie or anything. They're always the rock bottom smoking outside, always screwing up. And the people who are doing well are these like hippy dippy, airheaded, uh, like milk toast glass of water boring people. Uh, where it's just like, I'm so sober, I don't have fun at all anymore except in being sober, right? Like, man, you'd be amazed at how much fun Parcheesi is. Like, that's not how <laughs> you can do other stuff, man. Uh, so yeah, I think it's that. It's just like the successes are way too happy and the unsuccesses are way too indigent. Thank y'all so much for saying that. Thank you for coming. Uh, thank you all of you for the work that you're doing. Uh, so important. And, and for your, your journey and your different stories. Thank you for having us. Thank you all. Thank you. <laughs>